everybody oh, my phone is messing up here uh luke thomas here with you for the monday morning analyst today on this day which is monday november 9th 2015 thank you so much for joining me there were a bunch of combat sports events over the weekend there were only two we're going to discuss i know that there was glory 25 which had a very controversial main event i know that there were the nogi worlds in jiu-jitsu actually had a teammate compete in the I'm not sure what weight class, but the purple belt division for women. Um, by the way, I don't know if y'all saw this. Jamie Varner won his purple belt division at the Nogi Worlds. And if you look at the picture on the podium, it's usually they go first. And then if you look at if you're if you're if you're looking at the camera it, or the picture, it's to the left is second, and then there's two thirds typically on the other side. Um, his dog is in the second place. Uh, picture of the podium with the other two guys on third which is kind of weird but it's kind of funny too uh anyway so congrats to jimmy varner for winning the nogi world so it's actually very um uh, the purple belt division i'm not sure which weight class but you get the idea um and there was a lot of other things that were going on in the world of combat sports bradley versus rios teddy atlas lost his mind lots of good stuff but uh we're only going to talk about the two mma events that took place this week there were ufc fight night 77 and bellator 145 so we'll talk about two of those things uh and then we will get to that's about it. We'll just sort of move on from here. Podcast works, as you know, five minutes. We like to talk about a big overview, 25 minutes, look at the technical action, and then a quick look ahead uh, about what's coming. Um, so let's do that. Let's do part one right now. Now, this is different. You notice that the past couple of Monday morning analysts have been recorded. Um, there were some scheduling issues, so I couldn't do that this week. There's definitely going to be a return to that next week for a big breakdown on all things UFC 193. We also used a telestration service next time. We'll get back to that as well next time. Um, but we're going to move away from that a little bit. I just want to want to say that, like, I get lots of different feedback about the podcast. Lots. Which is to say, some people want it to be the telestration stuff. Some people want it to be um, more, um, they want some visual element, elements, but not too many. Some people don't want any technical breakdown. They just want my overview of the fights, which is going to be more about what today is going to sound like. So let me just say this. My email is luke.thomas at espionation.com. If you have any views on what you want out of this podcast, because it hasn't, unlike the live chat, it hasn't quite formed an identity fully yet, email me. Give me some feedback. Let me know exactly how you feel. I really need your input here. kind of want to settle on one thing and stick to it. I feel like we've got a little bit of a format, uh, but not much else. So email me, luke.thomas at espionation.com. Sorry, these bright lights are killing me. And then, uh, and then we'll go on from there. Okay, so opening statement, five minutes. Here we go. All right, so we all saw the news from Bellator about what the uh, the event in February is going to be like. Dota five thousand versus Kimbo Slice, and then the you know the rematch in the making. Hoist Gracie versus Ken Shamrock will fight again as well. I won't really get into a comment on that just yet. I believe me, plenty to say about it, but I'll save it for a different podcast. Um, but let me say something about this, and I know that you're probably even sick of hearing it. I'm willing to acknowledge that what I'm about to tell you. You are tired of hearing from me, but I am beginning to see a chorus of views on this. It's no longer just me. I believe, for example, today, um, Cage Potato has a big post on this as well. I bring up the announcement from Bellator 145 with Slice and Data 5000 and everybody else, because... Um, if you, if you watched Bellator on Friday and or UFC on Saturday, these events are entirely too long. And I know I keep saying this to the point where everyone gets sick of it, but it's really true. It's really, 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 really true. 
There is little more painful than an MMA broadcast on free TV these days. For all of the talk about look at all that we're giving you, look at all this extra content, you, and this goes for Spike now too, Spike and Fox Sports 1, they are trying to monetize it by selling it to advertisers and they're creating these three, three and a half hour broadcasts, which is madness. It is unbearable to watch. All of these thousands of announcements, these should be quick in and out. This staged things on literally on stage. It's just so painful. It's so long. It's so annoying. People want to watch fights and they want to get out. And I realize there's a, there's a, there's a need to make money on these broadcasts. And Bellator is, is actually much better than, than UFC in the sense that their typical Friday night broadcast is only a, roughly two hours, nine to 11 and some change. Um, there's not a lot of playtime in between. But if you watched both events this weekend, how many ads did you see for the new Buffalo BK chicken fries? I mean, it was so bad. It would beat you over the head. I know I'm mentioning it, and advertisers are going to say, well, you you remembered us, that for, therefore we worked. No, I'm going to boycott you. That's how much I, I'm annoyed by that. Um, there's no way I'm going to buy anything on an MMA broadcast ever as a consequence. It's so painful. It's so long. It is so dragged out. It is such a reduction in the consumer experience. And if you are a consumer, you need to speak up like I am. I know we don't want to give up on watching fights. I know we don't want to skip a fight as a consequence, but you got to start making some choices verbally about what you're going to tell these companies, Bellator, UFC, Spike, Fox Sports 1, whoever. It's not okay to just ruin the consumer experience because you're trying to make an extra buck. It is, it is so outrageously painful to watch. It doesn't help the live experience either. I can only imagine, although I was not in St. Louis um, for Bellator or Sao Paulo for the UFC, but nevertheless, um, dreadful, dreadful. Something has to be done. Please. If you're just going to put on fights um, and you're going to penalize the viewer for a first round knockout, but then filling all the ad space that would normally take up that time, you are, you are, you are just fleecing the consumer. That's what you're doing. And it's it's disgusting and it needs to stop. Okay. So that's that for that piece. Let me turn this off. If this will work. Here we go. Okay. Let's put 25 on the clock. And we're just going to go through these. The visual element from the Kimura episode with Husmar Paharas was important. I kind of want to get back to that. Don't have the opportunity to do that today. Um but I do want to just sort of give an overview on some of the fights without going too hardcore into detail. I'm going to dial it back just a little bit and see what you guys think about that. If you like that, we'll keep doing it. If you, it's how the podcast actually was originally envisioned when it was first an audio podcast. But if you like that, we'll do that. If you want something a little more specific, we'll bring that back. And certainly for next week, if not beyond, give me your perspective. Luke.thomas at SBNation.com. Okay, 25 minutes on the clock. Here we go. All right, so let's start with the most important one. Uh, let's go to... The UFC Fight Night 77. This took place, I can't even name this venue, but basically in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Um, This was on Fox Sports 1, although part of the preliminary card was on UFC Fight Pass. I do not have attendance numbers. Let's see, UFC Fight Night. I should have got that beforehand. Attendance. Gate. Here we go. It drew 7,539 people for a gate of 454,000. I'm not sure that even covered the payroll, Um, but okay. 
So, obviously, headlined, as we know, by Vitor Belhor versus Dan Henderson. Vitor won at 207 of the first round via KO. Not a lot to say about this one. There wasn't a ton of action. Vitor looked quite deflated, um, to put it mildly. He he was really patient and economical with the strikes. Didn't really throw a whole lot. And you could tell he was looking to time something. I don't know if it was something he saw in the fight, something he know Henderson does. But what you saw Henderson doing was ducking right, ducking right. Not heavily leaning onto one side, but kind of lowering his level, lowering slash leaning over to one side. He's got the H-bomb packs back here. And what you saw was he, he leaned, sat up, walked over, and as he walked over, Vitor Belfort, to his credit, perfectly timed a head kick, which he knew he was going to lean into, popped him with it, and uh, from there also caught him with a left in transition. That was actually what wound up getting Henderson to stumble to the mat and, and then followed up from there. Um, what to say about it? Vitor Belfort was ranked fourth in the division heading in. He is still a very relevant player at middleweight, despite all of the issues related to um, you know PEDs and or TED, testosterone replacement therapy use. For Henderson, to me, what I look at this is that this was a big opportunity for him to launch back into the top 10, maybe even top 5, depending on how somebody could rank it if he had beaten uh, Belfort. This does not help that at all. And worse, you know, we have talked about before that the legendary chin of Dan Henderson would have probably taken that before, and and simply he's not really capable of doing that. Not to say it was an insignificant strike to begin with, but um, you know, certainly his ability to take damage has been compromised. I think we can all agree with that. And so when you accept that as a fundamental precept uh, or a fundamental condition of the way he fights, you begin to say, you know, when is the end coming? There's been a debate as well about his place in mixed martial arts. Is he or is he not an all-time great? I would say I admit his resume is mixed, and um, he never had the sustained dominance that I think you typically need for that sort of thing. But his resume presents an interesting uh, test case because, again, the first fighter in two weight classes to become a champion in a major division or a major organization, Um, you know, beating legends like Fedor and, uh, you know, any other number of fighters you can name. He's done a lot. Um, Not quite enough maybe to meet traditional demands of greatness, but I don't think the debate is as settled as some people suggest. Glover Teixeira defeated Patrick Cummings via TKO at 112 of the second minute. Um, you know, you saw Brian Stan talking about the head movement of P- Patrick Cummings. I thought that was much more on display this time. I really enjoyed it. Um, did a lot of good there. But he really has to have his hands on you for his offense to mean a whole lot. And that can mean two different things. Number one, hands clasped for any kind of number of takedowns. That's one condition. The other one is he likes to do a lot of dirty boxing. He likes to grab behind the neck and the head and then fire up a shot. And these are all great uh, tools to use, of course, but it limits him at distance. At distance, it winds up making him be a bit of a sitting duck. You can bait him out of that because he, you know he needs to have that hand control for his offense to exist. So you can catch him coming in. You can bait him to come in and then switch out. There's lots of different things you can do there. So that's a really pr- big problem for him. Everyone says, well, he's a takedown and control guy. He is. But, you know, the truth is, inside, he's got some good knees in the clinch. He has really good uppercuts from dirty boxing. But if he just can't establish that hand control, boy, his whole game falls apart. Um, so that was one condition. Second was, you know, he's really good at finding a way to your hips and getting his a hands class with a C grip or the gable grip. Um, he has good singles. He has good doubles. He has good double lifts and slams. He's got a nice wide array of takedowns. But on the ground, he did a really poor job of um, – keeping Glover flat to the mat. Now, let me give Glover, Glover some praise. Glover is very excellent, 
one thing you want to see, and, and again, Brian Stan talked about this as well, if someone's hips, these are the two sides of their hips, if the hips and the shoulders are pinned to the mat, bro, they're stuck. There's nothing you can do. What you want to get is you want to get something off. Instead of being flat on this canvas here, I want to have side coming up. I want to have a, a hip up. I want to have some kind of angle. Once I create angles, you can get yourself into trouble if you don't know what you're doing. But if you know what you're doing, getting that angle, getting off that shoulder, getting off that hip, these are fundamental conditions to standing up. And you would always see he would wait. He would block hand control, right? or he would do bicep control underneath. He would wait. And then the minute that something happened where Cummins tried to come down with a punch or he would shift his base or balance at all, boom, here's Teixeira firing an underhook underneath. I also like to say standing, what I really enjoyed about Teixeira was um, – he didn't have to change a lot of combinations. He would wait for the jab of Cummins. He would slip it, and then he would throw a one-two or a one-two, and then even sometimes an uppercut at the end. And that was the other part about Teixeira's offense that I really enjoyed. He might have the best uppercuts in MMA, certainly the most consistent ones, right? He really – and he doesn't turn them on early. Sometimes, in other fights he has, but I've noticed he's a little more patient with the uppercut. He starts with jabs and hooks. Right, and he'll do, he'll do some body work, uppercuts, kind of punches, shovel punch type things. But as the fight progresses and guys get tired, and he's better at establishing range, right? Because what he was doing was he was backing up Cummins, staying just outside the hand control distance, and so Cummins would paw, and he would slip out to the side and throw an uppercut underneath, uppercut, and then a left hook. Like he was doing just a lot of excellent work with the uppercut to the body, front uppercut, rear uppercut, two different kinds of uppercuts there. He was using them both, so just a great. Great utilization of the uppercut um, by Glover Teixeira. Really, really enjoyed that. Then, of course, who can forget Thomas Almeida just blowing past Anthony Burchak at uh, via KO at 412 of the first, or excuse me, 422 of the first round. There is so much you could say about Thomas Almeida. First of all, and, and no one even discussed this, love the fact that when he he stuffed a single leg by essentially uh, essentially essentially wrapping the head and then behind the hips and then sprawling out, actually. And I wound up pushing Burchak down on the ground. And once you're on there, that's actually a jiu-jitsu position where you can then take the back, wind up in leg drag, depending on any different kind of things you want to do. You guys remember the pass that Conor McGregor did to get to mount on Dennis Seaver from that same position. You can wind up doing that kind of thing, too. So he had a lot of options there. But Burchak began to scramble. And as he went to his base, you saw him go – uh, Almeida back down. So imagine this is the canvas. He went to his back to throw the darts up. Couldn't quite get it in time, but I really liked how proactive he was. Once he did that, he missed it. Established guard, squared his hips to him, and was able to stand and get away. Great limp legs to get out of single leg takedowns. Really enjoyed that from Thomas Almeida. That was fantastic. But there's so much you could say about his ability to slip and punch over the top. Just the ease with which he's able to make. Like One of the things that was so great about Jose Aldo was when he was coming up, and I wrote about this this was years ago on Bloody Elbow when I wrote there, the reflexive decision-making of Jose Aldo was so phenomenal. In a moment, he was able to read you and make a pick. It's like Tom Brady, right? Tom Brady, they, he, he, the, the ball gets snapped. He takes it. There's a three, five, seven-step drop, reads the field, goes through his progressions, and makes a decision super quick. It's hard to get pressure on him because he releases the ball so fast, and he almost – you know, except for Keenan Robinson picking him off yesterday. He just doesn't make very bad, very many bad choices. He always sort of finds the correct open receiver, and, and then, you know, magic happens, right? It's like that. He just makes such a quick, instinctive read in the striking department. Now, I don't think he's got it the same way that Jose Aldo does everywhere else. But in that striking department, 
Thomas Almeida makes excellent, excellent, excellent reflexive decisions. Slipping punches and coming over the top with the left. If you get a certain punch that you go back to, he slips to the outside and comes over with the right. So, it was, for example, when Burchak would extend with the left, he was he was slipping it and then coming over with the right. Uh, no. Excuse me. That's not correct. He would slip this way and then come over with the left. That's how he would counter it because he would go to the other side of the punch with it. Um so the punch was here. He would slip out and then bang out over the top. It was amazing what he was able to do. But the for me, that finishing sequence was really what it was all about. Why? Goes for the spinning back elbow and misses. And by the way, it was also nice during clinch breaks. He fights for underhooks with extraordinary ferocity. And when there's clinch breaks, he doesn't wait until they're at punching distance to throw a strike. He waits until there's before the clinch break has even happened, and he sets the clinch break in motion by firing elbows over the top. Really, I mean, just he's phenomenal because he'll fire that elbow over the top and then use that to then dig an underhook. Like, he's just so phenomenal with his underhooking in the clinch, which is why he's very, very hard to take down against that fence. But getting back to that finishing sequence, what I really enjoyed about it was that he was able to – he missed with a spinning back elbow. He fired a couple shots and missed. He threw a one-two, and they landed, but they kind of went – instead of landing here, here – they kind of landed like here, here. Not to the back of the head. They were just a little too far. He takes a quick stutter step backwards, fires the same exact punch combination, and both land bang, bang. Drop Burchak like a sack of potatoes. So this was my point. Like This this sequence I'm talking about happened in a matter of like seconds. Not even one or two seconds. Nothing. But it was just so instinctual. Bang, bang. Realizes he's a little too far forward. Takes a quick step backwards. I mean, like... In the, in the quickest amount of time, like a, nothing, gets back to normal range, and then since he's reestablished the correct range, he just unloads on Burchak and he goes down. It's just it is so, so phenomenal with his striking. He can do it all, and he can do it all instinctually. And to me, it's athletic, it's, it's quick, it's powerful, it's part of a larger combination of comprehensive combinations. Um, he's, he's, he's a talent, man. Uh, not a whole lot to say about Alex Oliveira versus Peter Hallman, who also the finishing sequence happened where Hallman was doing better in that third round, was kind of backing up Oliveira a little bit. Oliveira tags him with a right, and then what happens is he tags him with a right, rolls under, comes in, tries to tag with another right. But what had happened was while Hallman was backing him up, he ate the right. Hallman backed up a little bit as to, to like almost accommodate the space of Oliveira rolling. Oliveira tags him with the right, rolls. So it kind of pushed Hallman back. So then when he came up, comes up and he throws another right, he was like perfect distance to just eat a, eat a, eat a right hand. And, you know, there was no, there was no, like he wasn't jabbing and coming out here and changing angles. He was sort of flat-footed in the pocket, and that contributed to it. I don't have a whole lot to say about the fight. Alex Oliveira, you know, what's interesting for me is what I liked about him was that, you know, look, he's got a lot of issues to work on with his striking. You know, it's down here, and it's a little bit labored with the punching. Um but he makes good use of his length. And by that, I mean, one thing I like about him is that, like Cummins, he likes to he likes to establish – he has more offense at non-hand control range. But one thing he was doing to Holman was he was constantly getting at least one hand on Holman and pulling him down. Constantly, constantly. Wearing on the neck. Wearing on the neck. And it was easy for him because he's, I think, deceptively strong. And one thing I noticed about Oliveira is I think he's got really strong grips. You know what I mean? Because he's able to grab the neck and he's able to yank and bring his own elbow to his body and it was giving Holman problems. When they were fighting for hand control in the clinch, he would get a hold of one and you would see it would take, you know, 
it would take Hallman with some extreme effort to break those grips off. So I think he's got a really strong grip. So he doesn't have like that super explosive, you know, Abel Trujillo kind of strength, but he's got that farm boy grip strength, which can do a whole lot of things for you. So, you know, look, Alex Oliveira has a lot of tenacity. I didn't think he's got some decent skills on the ground. Good, strong grip strength. Likes to hang on people and wear on them. You know, got some, I think someone who has the ability to deal with that, someone putting constant physical pressure on your head and neck, like who can cut angles and then fire and then cut angles and then fire and then cut angle and circle, would give him a lot of problems, but that wasn't pure Holman. Rashid Magomedov defeats Gilbert Burns via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board. Burns started with a couple of nice takedowns. Um, um, uh, uh, one of my favorite takedowns, uh, he didn't do it off the arm drag, but basically what you do is you hit an arm drag, and as they come forward, you um, hook, an, hook a leg on the inside, and then it's almost like it turns into a double with a trip. It's hard to explain. It's arm drag thrown by. My outside leg goes to their opposite side leg, and I hook them and drive them down. He did it on the same side, so outside leg goes to outside leg, hook them and drive them down. And it wasn't enough an arm drag. I think it was just more off of a double, but it was a turning double. So you saw Burns push at an angle like this, right? He didn't go this way. He pushed at an angle like this, and then he tripped that outside leg. This is Magomedov. He tripped the outside leg here, so it helped him establish the, the finish. And then once that got up, he got behind him and lifted him and popped his hips and, and drove him up, drove him down. But what was really interesting about Magomedov, again, he doesn't have – I mean, he's a different weight class. doesn't quite have the speed and the precision that Almeida does. Um it doesn't quite have the full arsenal of kicking, I don't think, either. But really just accurate, fundamental striking. Great takedown defense over time, anyway. And so, once you put someone like Burns at distance, they just the, the game begins to collapse a little bit. Um, you know, credit to Burns for hanging on. He was getting pounded on there in that second round, especially, I thought. Um, showed a lot of grit, a lot of determination. But a bit of a tough run for Burns, you know. Has kind of fallen short in IBJJF tournaments, if you guys haven't been paying attention. Um, longtime rival, Leandro Lowe, choked him out at Copa Podio. Um, and then he lost this match as well. So, you know, he's had a bit of a run where he's not quite doing so well. I, I, he's very athletic. He has good wrestling. He just needs to get a comfort game on the out. A lot of these guys, once you put them at distance, the, the comfort game becomes nowhere. Um, but, you know, Magomedov, again, I, I wouldn't say his uppercuts are quite as frequent or good as Teixeira, but they're quality, good body work from him on, from both sides. Um, body to head, not ability to go downstairs and upstairs, um, and just find a way to keep Burns there. And when you keep him there, um, he's a much more manageable task. Corey Anderson defeated Fabio Maldonado, uh, 30-27 across the board. A couple of uh, this was funny to me. Maybe it's not so funny to you. Maldonado hit a couple of Homer Simpson sweeps. So it's a sweep from like deep half where um, if someone has one knee down, right? So they got a knee down here and their leg is out here, and the person underneath is in deep half, right? What you want to do is, if you're the person underneath, you get control of their legs and you bring them as close to possible, right? You, so you co- you collapse the size of their base, and then you're if you're here, if your thumb is the person, then you then you spin out the top and you come out on top, All right? And then you're, you're supposed to be able to get on top. Now, what would happen was, Maldonado would be underneath. He would take Corey Anderson's base, he would close it, spin out the top here. And then Anderson would be able to stand up. I don't think he had control over the far side hip, but whatever the case, it was just funny that you know. You ever seen the Homer Simpson episode where he gets into boxing? Uh, it reminds me of the style of Fabio Maldonado, and there's Maldonado in jiu-jitsu hitting not, not one but two Homer Simpson sweeps. So that was kind of interesting. What is it really to say? Anderson just did a good job of not really playing that game, uh, if, if getting on top, staying on top for the most part, 
Um, he was giving Maldonado the space. If you want to close off deep half and you're in half guard, so if I'm if you're on top of someone like this and they have this leg closed off, your right leg closed off, right? It's my right hand, it's the right leg, they got closed off. It's your left leg that's free. Your left leg needs to be against their ribs, nice and tight, so they can't dig under that open free leg. And he had a nice well, he didn't hit it bad, open space there. So Maldonado was able to twist underneath um, and create that space, close off the base, and then reverse and stand. But other than that, you know, putting pressure on him against the fence, constantly putting takedown pressure on him, never really getting backed up at striking range, never playing that game with him. Uh, a very uh, pedestrian, but, you know, workmanlike decision for Corey Anderson. Gleason Tebow defeated Abel Trujillo on the prelim card via Rear Naked Chick at 145 of the first round. Not a lot to say about this. Tebow, um, look, Keith Peterson is normally a very excellent referee. And what was so troubling about this was that he – this is not like – so if you watched last week's Monday Morning Analyst where you had Mazagati on the wrong side of the Kimura between Jake Shields and Husmor Pajares, you know, he was on the right side, Keith Peterson was, between Trujillo and Tebow. And he still kind of stopped it early. I'm not sure exactly what he saw or didn't see, but not the best work from him, although he's usually quite an excellent referee. Uh, but Tebow was controlling him, had a nice strong mount. Um he was about to get reversed back into mount, it looked like, by T-Bow. But nevertheless, uh, they could fight again. But to me, T-Bow was just dominating him. Uh, fun fight between Johnny Case and Jan Cabral. Uh, Johnny Case wins 29-28. A lot to go on there. Almost too much to get into because we're running out of time. Um, Tero Tavares defeated Clay Guida. 39 seconds of the first round. Man, what a great job by Tero Tavares. And there's a, two things he did really well there. Number one, you saw the head outside double that uh, Guida tried to tried for, which was a mistake. When you go for the head outside double and you lift, you got to get their legs past you. Whatever side. If I lift to this side and turn, their outside leg has to get past my hip. Go back and watch that fight. Well, here's what happens. Guida gets a nice deep shot on her. That's fine. Head outside. That's risky, but if you can get him to the opposite side, it's no big deal. Gets him, lifts him, turns him. Before he can get fully made perpendicular, Tavares sticks his outside leg and blocks it. In other words, Guido's able to get up and drive and feel like he's turning, but what winds up happening is when they go to the ground, Tavares still has both legs around him. He's going to have the outside leg no matter what, even if he's getting turned here, and he had just stuck his ankle to the outside. So Guido goes, boom, drives down, and what does Tavares, Tavares do? He's like, well, all I have to do is just, cinch this full guard cinches the full guard and the other thing he does is you know when you get that 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 grip there you have a head head and arm guillotine you have to lean to the same side as the guillotine itself you want to be on a hip you don't want to be flat on your back pulling you want to be on a side crunching in okay um and so he's doing that and you see his pants almost come off like Guida. he gets tries to turn to mount it almost breaks at one point and then he reestablishes, gets turned him out and that makes it even worse. So then he eventually falls back to the same side, but Tavares is on that same side hip, and he finishes it. So that was a really nasty, nice finish by Tiago Tavares. Uh, Chad Skelly defeating Kevin Souza at 156 of the second round. Not a lot to say about that one. Um, Viscardi Andrade defeated Gassan Umalatov. Unanimous decision. Uh, Jimmy Rivera defeating Pedro Munoz via split decision. And then Mateus uh, Nicolau versus, uh, defeated Bruno Rodriguez by submission at Japanese necktie. It's the third round of 327. Um, you know, the Japanese necktie is fun, but there's a little bit more things I want to get to. Um, okay, real quickly with the time we have left, which is not much. Let's see here. 
Oof. Okay. Let's quickly, 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 quickly talk about this Bellator card. This took place at the Scott Trade Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Bellator 145. Uh, there was an attendance of 5,259. We don't yet have any attendance figures. This is about 1, 1,500 less than who was there for the Kimbo Slice Show, so a bit of a reduction there. Not going to talk about the preliminary card at all. It was terrible. Uh, real quickly, Daniel Strauss taking on Patricio Freire, winning 49-46, 48-47, 48-47. I had it 48-47. I gave Patricio the first and last rounds. I think that's right, and I think I gave him the middle three. Um, I have to go back and look, but something like that. I didn't give him four, although, I th- although you could have given him the first. Maybe I gave him the first three, not the last two. I don't remember. Either way, the difference maker to me was that this was not all that different than their second fight, except that um, even with a broken hand, I thought the scrambling of Daniel Strauss was better. But the scrambling of Daniel Strauss was better because, and I think this was intentional, the wrestling was worse. Which is to say, I don't think Daniel Strauss intentionally tried to have bad wrestling. But I also don't think he tried to commit to wrestling so much that he couldn't back out and win scrambles. If you watch, he would hit a double. He would try for it. He would have a nice penetration step, and he would stop moving his feet. He would actually go to the ground and take a knee because I think he wanted to back out of the space. If he didn't get the takedown easy, he just didn't want it. So that was an interesting thing for me. Like, if you watch Daniel Strauss's takedowns, if he wants to, like, blast W backwards, he can. He, like, I don't think he forgot about that. I think he made a conscious decision to say, if I can't get a takedown, I'm not going to get too deep because what you see with – and you saw it a couple times, he almost get it. Man, Patricio Freire is great where if you – Attempt to take down. He blocks it, and you guys are stuck in a scramble position. He's great at turning you over. He's great at driving a hip in off a wizard. He's great at getting a trip in off a wizard of, to flip you. He just has a lot of different tricks in that position to get you on your back and on top. He can circle out and drive you forward. He just has a lot of tricks, man, a lot of tricks. Or he'll dive an underhook and then block another side, then rotate. He just has a lot of tricks. So I, I think Strauss was wary about that, which which – lessened his takedown ability, but made him better in the scramble. So that was kind of an interesting twist for me to watch there. But the speed of the left hand is what really got the what got Freddy in the end. Um, he just has such a quick ability to fire the left straight with no setup, to fire it at the end of a combination. Um, and he fires it with such accuracy and speed. Freddy likes a little bit of like prolonged pocket exchanges, which is Daniel Strauss does not. He likes to get in and get out. You know, he'll, he will on occasion sit down on his punches for, you know, three, four shots, but he likes to do one-twos and get out one-two threes at the most, you know. Um, that's just not Friday's style. Freddie had his moments backing him up, getting his fence along the uh, getting his back along the fence, reducing his movement, reducing his ability to, to launch a whole lot. Obviously, by the last round or two, his left hand, Daniel Strauss, became largely ineffective. But for me, what was interesting was just how much better he was at scrambling and negating all that um, excellent ability of Freddie to get on top by reducing, I think, his own wrestling in the process. Will Brooks defeated Marcin Held via unanimous decision, 50-45, and then two 49-46s. You know, this was an interesting one for Brooks. Here's what I'll say about Held. Held, First of all, Held started out with that. uh, I don't know if you guys noticed it. Held started out with the same armbar attempt that um, McGeary had on Ortiz, where the outside foot is like the shin across their belly, and then your excuse me, the inside foot, shin across their belly, outside foot, back of the head, rather than both being around the body and then pulling. And uh, you recall, McGeary was able to take that very position and turn it into a triangle. I guess Hell didn't really want to or doesn't have that ability quite as locked up as McGeary does. But that was kind of interesting to me. But what is really great about um, Held, his guard, 
Here is the key to beating Marching Held. Marching Held's guard is he does have a couple. You know, he has triangles and stuff, but they're not that great. What is I mean, phenomenal about his guard? You have to you have to watch your base with him. He is constantly disrupting your base. He might have the best guard at disrupting base in MMA. I thought it was Carlos Condit. Maybe it's not. Carlos Condit is busy with his legs in ways that um, Held is not. But, man. So what he would do is he would fail on the armbar. He would fail on the armbar attempt. But what would, we do, what would he do to make up for it? He would keep the leg around the back of the neck of Brooks, putting weight down on him, and he would use that. He would drive his leg out. So he would have the back of the neck controlled, or at least some weight on it, and he would drive it out while he pulled with his hands to off-balance Brooks. He did this constantly. Constantly he would do this. A lot of guys, well, they'll chain in a omoplata and then you know invert back into something, but they're not really disrupting a lot of base at the time. Boy, Brooks is phenomenal at that. Here's another example of this. He would try for that triangle, knowing, knowing exactly what. If you put a triangle on someone, they're going to try and base up tall, nice and tall, right? Good, strong posture, and so you're going to have to let it go. But once they break it, they're not typically going to hang out with that because the guy can scramble, he can escape, he can reach underneath because you have a nice tall structure you've built. So they're going to come back down fast. So what does Marching Hell do? Not only does Marching Hell anticipate you, boom, straight posture, he anticipates you coming back down quickly. When, he, when you come back down quickly, he then throws his hips up behind you to then roll you to a side to create an angle just to get a hand. All he needs is a hand under a leg, and he can start creating madness. So well, here's my whole point. like Your base has to be super solid, super strict the whole time because two different ways he'll catch you. He'll get you moving one way, knowing you're going to come back a different way, and then he can use that to keep moving you forward that same way. He just has a lot of different tricks to just find open spaces, man. And that he didn't used to have those, you know. Um, Brooks was much better about closing off the – remember I talked about before the knee to the ribs? He was much better about closing off the knee to the ribs to shut down any kind of um, – um, typical entries, I would say, for, for deep half. But nevertheless, Hell was able to find him. Um, boy, that knee bar was deep, man. In that first round, that knee bar was deep, fully extended. Um, you know, when you have somebody where they're, you know, you're, I don't want to be too graphic, but their rear end is facing you and you have a toe hold, boy, you've got them in a bad way. The closer the ankle is to their own rear end, that's what makes it worse. That's what Jimmy Smith was talking about. If you could get their ankle to touch their rear end as you've got that toe hold on, so you're going to grab the toe, come around here, you're going to, and some people don't like to make a C. Gary Tonin actually showed me what, to make a C grip. So you make a C and then you, I mean, you just, you know, you, you, you do what's called um, toes to chin and you use your whole body. Remember I told you before? Paul Harris would take his whole body and just rotate the Kimura. You take that and you can actually rotate the uh, the toe hold. If they drive it out straight, then you transition to the knee bar. Here's how you know a good knee bar. This is why the knee bar of Brock Lesnar always surprised me. I mean, Frank Mir is super strong, so I guess it doesn't. But a good knee bar is you kind of want their their uh, toes and an ankle right around your jawline. That's like ideal. And that's where he had it, man. That's where he had it. Remember the one from Frank Mir was like down, like below where I can even show you on camera. Um, so he had a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, knee bar there. He, uh, but, but, but one thing that Brooks was doing really well the whole time, you'll notice he always had two hands on one piece of the structure that held needed. Two hands on one leg he needed to close, he wouldn't let him close it. Two hands on one arm he needed to get from here to here to, to clasp, wouldn't let him. So you would say all these other pieces 
Held would build. All these other structures Held would build to finish this submission. But he needs that one last piece to come and connect. And Brooks will hold it and put two hands. Two hands on this. So, he, you know, he couldn't quite get it over. He couldn't quite get it over. And he'd have to basically abandon it. Uh, or, or you because know, Brooks would keep one hand on it, take the other hand, and punch him in the face. Um, but, you know, to me, it was really amazing about Held's guard was just how disruptive it was to his opponent's base. Michael Chandler defeated <clears throat> David Rickles at 3.05 of the second round. Was not impressed with Michael Chandler here. Um, David Rickles has made improvements, so the, I, the fact that the fight went longer to me is not of no surprise. I do not judge Chandler in that way. And Chandler looked to be in phenomenal shape and finished nice and strong. I, I, lots of things went right for him. I still, I still have issues with him having some fundamental defensive priorities. Um, he was getting touched up there as the fight was going along, and he won a Hail Mary punch around, not a Hail Mary punch, but he just won this, you know, uh, I should say he winged or whatever, a huge punch counter over the top. I think it was the, the right, and it, and it crushed the nose of Rickles, um, and that started the blood to flow, and, and it probably shook him up a little bit. I'm sure it hurt, too. He actually collapsed and then shot in, and, uh, and, and Chandler was able to stop him, but you get the idea. One second here. Anyway, long story short with this, um, he just seemed to – I just don't see enough stick and move from him in moments where he needs it. In moments where guys are coming forward in straight lines and they're kind of connecting because they're – in this particular instance, they've established the range better with you know with footwork that had been just really strong encroachment. You know, He just kind of stands there a little bit rather than like, I'm going to jab and circle out and reset um, – there's still a little bit of that with Michael Chandler. I, I don't know if he's really. I mean, he's got he's got the Derek Campos win. He's got now the David Rickles win under his belt. And you would say, well, that might be next for for um, for Will Brooks. I would like to see him fight one more guy. I really would give Brooks, you know, Patricio Freire. I mean, I know he lost, but that's a fight they got to make, and or give him Patricky or something. I don't know. Chandler just needs – I just feel like – I know he's down with Aaron Simpson at Power MMA, and they're going to cater to his wrestling style, which I ultimately think is beneficial. But I just want to see him have a few more tricks up his sleeve as it relates to defensive priorities and um, systems in place. Someone's doing this in this instance. Here's where you need to go and just have it down. You know, Not memorized exactly, but like internalized in that kind of way. Uh, and let's see. And then Emmanuel Sanchez defeated Justin Lawrence via split decision, 28-29, and then two 29-28s. Uh, a lot to like here. In the first round, Justin Lawrence did a great job of establishing range uh, with his sidekicks, um, getting out of the way, strong takedown defense, good circling he had. Um, but eventually he got caught backing out. Emmanuel Sanchez doing a lot of this, what I call swimming. You know, trying to close the distance, but your arms are like out here, tons of space in your ribs. You know, either you're going to miss like that, you're going to get countered down the middle like that, or guys will let you come in, duck, and then you can get double underhooks on them. It's not my favorite way to close the distance on someone, if I'm scouting them anyway. Um, but then this is why I picked him to win. Just just tenacity, man. Tries to score from every position. And so he's, he's green, working on his skills. But, man, you saw when he got taken down, or he tried to throw a takedown, he actually got reversed because um, he got greedy, got the one hook, couldn't establish the other one. And, all you, look, if you have one hook and you have this grip, you don't have the seatbelt grip. Seatbelt 
If I have a seatbelt grip, I come over one shoulder. The hand that's coming over the shoulder, you pretend like you're stabbing him in the heart. This hand goes to the chest. This hand goes on top. That's how you do it, right? Um, he didn't have that. He kind of had this bit underneath. So if you have control of one side and you have this underneath and you saw Justin Lawrence do it, you put one hand on the mat and you just turn into him. There's nothing There's nothing holding you. And so he turned into him and got into full guard. But once he got into full guard, you saw Sanchez constantly working. And, and I want to make a point here. People think all, the only elbow that will work is this one or if like, you can push it away and, and you can bang him out. Those are all like super nice. Don't worry. I swear to God, this is like – I'm only bringing this up because it shocked me. And one time I was rolling with a guy, a little bit smaller than me, but, you know, 220 pounder, like a big dude. And I swear to God, I swear to God, I'm not even saying this because I'm, I'm trying to make yourself look like a badass. Furthest thing from it. The guy was a fireman. He was way tougher than me. I, I had worked, I had found a way to side and I was trying to control and he was really, um, he had really strong hips and I couldn't keep control of him. So I was, I was like, let me go north-south on him a little bit. And I like to put an arm there and then um, control him from there and block the hips. And I remember I had one arm on the outside of his face. And I was just all I did was just close my elbow because um, he was trying to get bicep control. So I just closed my elbow. Just nothing. Like, just, just, like literally, just this. Just that. And I remember when the roll was over, he had a big black eye. And so I was, like, shocked. I was like, There's, I was like dude, I was, I was like, profusely apologetic. He didn't even feel it. He didn't even realize nothing. Nothing had hurt him. Um, but what you saw was Sanchez doing this, pushing away, and then this. You saw him trying to slash across, and then you saw him just doing this. So, uh, sorry, the same thing, closing, just closing that elbow. It doesn't take much, and you can really bust somebody up. Uh, it's shocking, shocking what it can do. So um, I just liked how tenacious underneath Emmanuel Sanchez was. Truly, truly, truly just underneath, firing elbows, creating separation, uh, working a high guard at some point, even got passed, still trying to find a way to his feet. You know, just constantly trying to push the action, constantly trying to score. Um, amazing. Amazing ability this guy has, truly. Uh, green, but that 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 the heart and the determination is uh, is hard to, to overlook. So, fighter of the card for Bellator, I will give to Daniel Strauss, especially since he won that title after he broke his hand and he fought through it. I really thought that was impressive. Daniel Strauss was my fighter of the card. Oh, Bobby Lashley beat James Thompson, but, you know, 54 seconds of the first round, but that fight sucked. Uh, okay. And then my fighter of the card for Belfort versus Henderson, I will give to Thomas Almeida. Just, just how natural and organic and amazing everything looked for him. Fighter of the card, Thomas Almeida. Fighter of the card in Bellator, uh, Daniel Strauss. Okay, coming up next. You guys know what time it is. UFC 193 is Saturday. This is part three of the podcast. Quickly, you'll know it's Rousey versus Holm. And then it's uh, Jacek versus Letourneau. Mark Hunt going to fight Antonio Silva. Robert Whitaker versus Raya Hall. That's not that great. Stephen Strew versus Jared Rochelle might be terrible. We'll see. Uh, Jake Matthews versus Akbar Ariola is going to be a disaster. Kyle Noak versus Peter Sabota. I don't know how that's going to go exactly. Anthony Paroche versus Gian Vellante. Uh, Richie Pacholik versus Danny Martinez. And then I'll just, you know, uh, Ben Wynn is back. I like him. He's taking on Ryan Pinoy. That might be kind of fun. Not a great card, to put it mildly. Strong at the top, but that's about it. Um, okay, guys, feedback, important. Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. Please send it to me. I always appreciate it. You can follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. And, um, but I really want those emails. Those emails are really big and important. What do you want out of this podcast? Do you want the tel- telestration service? Do you want like quick overviews? Do you want in-depth breakdowns? What do you want? 
let me know, and I'll help organize this podcast around what you guys want. Until next time, enjoy the fights.